0: This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bauerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control.
1: We don't want either the clinicians or the patients to panic and go, oh my God, there's something, you know, I've got a brain tumor. But we want them to, to step back and say, okay, do I need to, to take some special steps with this person? And mm-hmm. we identify some red flags based on the symptoms in the history, and that would indicate that I need to be careful with my physical exam. So if this is somebody who's having seizures, I'm not having to move their head around. I'm not pushing on their neck. And then we also identified red flags in the physical exam. So if I do a test and I get a certain result, then that might indicate, okay, there are some structures that are being stressed that make this a more urgent situation then another patient who may be having, let's say, pain and headaches, but not neurological involvement.
0: Welcome back to the Bendy Bodies podcast, bringing you state-of-the-art information to help you improve your well-being, enhance your performance, and optimize career longevity. This is the hypermobility MD, Linda Bluestein, and unfortunately, co-host Jennifer Milner is unable to join us today. I started Bendy Bodies to provide accessible information about joint hypermobility. Combining my medical education and personal experiences enables me to treat and coach patients and clients to optimize their quality of life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Our guest today is Dr. Leslie Russick, DPT, PhD, Professor Emeritus at Clarkson University and practicing orthopedic physical therapist specializing in hypermobility syndrome, fibromyalgia, headache, and chronic pain. Hello, Dr. Russick, and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you for inviting me. I should say welcome back to Bendy Bodies. We're so excited to chat with you today. And we spoke with you in episode 52. And at that time, you described your background and experience and gave us some fabulous recommendations about managing jaw pain, something that we see so incredibly frequently with people who have symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility. And um, so I'll definitely refer the listener back to that episode to learn more about you and your background. Um, but today we are going to cover upper cervical instability or UCI, a frequently misunderstood and crucially important topic for people with generalized joint hypermobility. Dr. Russick, you and an international team of physical and physiotherapy clinicians and a symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility expert, rheumatologist recently published expert consensus recommendations for screening, assessing, and managing patients with UCI associated with symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility. This article will be linked in the show notes and is titled Presentation and Physical Therapy Management of Upper Cervical Instability in Patients with Symptomatic Generalized Joint Hypermobility international expert consensus recommendations. So we are thrilled to chat with you. Can you start out by telling us what is UCI and why is this so incredibly important for people with symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility?
1: So UCI is upper cervical instability, and it includes both craniocervical instability, CCI, and atlantoaxial instability, AAI. And we debated about the terminology. Sometimes people will use CCI to relate to both of those joints, but technically it refers to the craniocervical, So the very, the head on the first vertebra, but we wanted to talk about both of them. And so some literature now is starting to use the term UCI. And it's really important for people with symptomatic joint hypermobility because we think it's really common and it contributes to things like headaches, jaw pain, um, other problems when it's mild, And when it's severe, it can be really disabling. So it's common in the mild form, not so common in the severe form, but very disabling. And it's a complicated type of patient, complicated presentation, difficult to diagnose. And we felt a lot of those people were getting missed, overlooked, maybe misdiagnosed and not ideally managed.
0: Sure, that that makes sense. And how did this journal article and expert consensus recommendations come about?
1: So a couple of years ago, there were a group of doctors who wanted to develop a protocol for using cervical traction to treat cervical instability. And I don't know how they got my name, but they invited me to join. And then I invited a couple more PTs and the PTs were concerned that cervical traction certainly can just decrease symptoms, but it might not be a good treatment overall. And then we realized we have no idea what good treatments are. There's nothing in the literature for this population, but there are a lot of people who know a lot. And in the United States in particular, those people are really spread out. And we haven't had a way of communicating. In Europe, so London, there's a cluster of clinicians and researchers that work together on hypermobility. There's another cluster in Denmark, and Belgium, Australia. But in the U.S., we really don't have any physical therapy-based research labs, academic programs, or any way for the clinicians, the expert clinicians to communicate. So I started getting a team together and we were talking about, well, what would you do for for UCI? And I realized that if we were going to be talking, we needed to share this information. So I reached out to Alan Hakim, rheumatologist and the director of education at the ehlers Donlow Society, and Jane Simmons, who coordinates physical therapy activities and research in London, and asked if they thought this was publishable. They were really excited about it. And then the timing worked out really well in that the Frontiers in Medicine journal was putting together a special topics on ehlers Donlos, and they invited me to submit something. And so the timing was good to submit this for that particular article. And it's not research, it's a consensus, it's a group of experts, researchers, and clinicians talking together, but it's the best knowledge that we have to date, and it's a starting point. And we should be sharing the best available knowledge until we have research that's better.
0: Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you explained that. I feel like that's so true in clinical practice because we we don't have literature and research to tell us how to handle so many things. And so we have to learn from each other. And this is just an incredible thing that that you all put together. I want you to explain, if you would, the difference between highly suggestive and common symptoms. Sure. So when
1: we as clinicians, as physical therapists, learn diagnostic tests, we learn that some are what we call sensitive. That is, if you have the condition, the test will definitely be positive. And some are specific, which is that if the test is positive, you almost certainly have the condition. And these are variables that are known for many tests that we use as physical therapists, but we don't know this for any of the tests that we use for upper cervical instability. But clinicians have an intuition about this, that as I was talking with this team of experts, some people would say, oh, well, but they always have occipital headaches. But occipital headaches can happen for a lot of reasons, so it doesn't prove they have upper cervical instability. Whereas if they have tingling in their face, that's less common. Fewer people with upper cervical instability will have that, but it definitely is very suggestive. So it helps us to make the diagnosis. And this is important because some of the signs and symptoms are Can be for many different conditions. Some of them could indicate POTS. Some of them could indicate a jaw problem. And so we don't want people to be misled by thinking that, oh, if I have jaw pain, I have cervical instability. But we do want people to know that if you're having pseudo seizures or blacking out and it's not POTS, that suggests upper cervical instability. So we don't have the research to prove that these tests are sensitive or specific, but intuitively, we agreed that certain tests tended to be more common or more diagnostic.
0: Sure, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I also really like the way you broke down into musculoskeletal UCI versus neurological UCI. Could you explain about that? Sure, sure. We we all know that there are different types of presentation
1: with UCI, and we debated as a group different ways to classify it. Would it be mild, moderate, or severe? Um, but we finally felt that the most useful distinction was this musculoskeletal versus neurological. And this is because the musculoskeletal tends to respond well to conservative treatment like physical therapy. So musculoskeletal means that the symptoms are due to to muscles and joints causing pain. And so things like headache, jaw pain, maybe feeling like you have a lump in your throat are things that we see commonly and in this musculoskeletal pattern. And then there was a group of patients that had a very different presentation with more neurological signs and symptoms suggesting that neurological structures were being affected. So seizure-like activities or drop attacks or um, unfeeling unstable, we call it boat rocking instability, which suggests that the brainstem is being compressed. So some of these uh, symptoms, the neurological symptoms are from compression of the brain stem. Some might be compression of cranial nerves at the base of the brain. Some might be compression of the blood vessels that Bring blood to the brain or that drain blood out of the brain. And so these patients have more what we call neurological signs, and they tended to be more
0: challenging to treat. Sure. It was interesting because I posted on social media that I was going to be interviewing you. And I've done that a number of other times and, and you know sometimes get some questions. I got a lot of questions this time, <laughs> a lot of things that people wanted to know. And one of the things that someone asked was, Why in this paper, you limited the conversation to upper cervical instability and did not include lower cervical instability because they were commenting that they thought that was also common.
1: It is also common. um, And the reason that we did that was so that it wouldn't be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So lower cervical instability tends to um, either cause pain into the arms or musculoskeletal pain and some of the same principles will hold for the musculoskeletal upper cervical instability it can also compress the spinal cord in the lower cervical spine and so they may present with some of the same some of the same neurological problems like the boat rocking instability or feeling wobbly on their legs for reasons other than just hypermobility but we felt that upper cervical instability was already an overwhelming topic yeah. to try to simplify and it took us a really long time to simplify it and we felt that was an important starting point so the lower cervical instability is really important as well maybe a next step for us to to take in the future
0: sure and i thought it was really Good that you also pointed out about confirmation bias and how important it is when you're asking these questions to ask them in in the right way. And I know um, I've experienced that when I I went briefly on a Facebook group that was specifically like for this to- topic, and I started like, oh man, the base of my skull hurts, and I I I started to kind of myself feel more uh, insecure about. You know what I was experiencing, and oh, maybe this is something that's more serious or something like that. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think that was a very important point that you that you all made.
1: Yeah, it's a really delicate balance that we don't want to encourage patients, any type of patient, to overreact because not everything is a crisis. Um, and so, if we list out symptoms, for example. It encourages people to agree with them. It's like, oh, yeah, I feel that, and I feel that, and I feel that. And so sometimes it's better to, as a clinician, just step back and let the patient tell their story and tell what's important to them so that it is not being biased by what I think might be going on. And it is a really delicate balance because sometimes patients don't know what to to share. So for Mm -hmm. example, a lump in the throat, they're coming for headaches and why would they think that trouble swallowing their medicine is related? And so sometimes we do need to draw that out from them, Mm -hmm. but it's a delicate balance between drawing things out and letting them tell their story
0: um, on their own. Sure. And I also thought it was really um, excellent how you talked about the different levels of irritability. Could you talk about that a little bit and explain how that information should be incorporated into clinical practice?
1: Yeah, we felt that was really important. It came up over and over again that people would say, oh, I wouldn't do that test. That would flare people up much too bad, badly, or I wouldn't do that treatment. That would make people worse. And that's when we realized we really had to have tears. And I'm really proud of this aspect of our model that we use the patient's subjective information and history to get a preliminary sense of of irritability. And we use that information to choose which physical exam tests to do. As a physical therapist, I learned, okay, these are the tests that you would do for instability. You know, you would do neck, you know, you do neck range motion on everybody, but it turns out that if somebody's really irritable, neck range of motion can completely flare them up. And so we have to have a different criteria for identifying what tests are even safe to do. And so we spent a lot of time figuring out how or what criteria tell us whether a condition is very irritable and then using the subjective history, their symptoms to decide what tests are safe to use. So what tests can we do on everybody? So you can look at their posture. You can look at pe- posture on everybody, but you might not want to have everybody moving their head around because if they're really their condition is really irritable, then it could make them much worse. And that could last for weeks. So it's a little bit different than I might do with a, an unstable shoulder. So an unstable shoulder as a PT, I might, there's some tests, they're called provocation tests that you do something and the patient goes, Ow, that that recreates my pain. And you're like, ah, okay. So now I have, I understand what's causing your pain, but the shoulder typically will hurt for a few minutes and then it'll go back to how it was before. The neck is more sensitive especially the neurological structures and if you flare them up they
0: could stay flared up for weeks. Okay. And you also talked about yellow and red flags and can you share how we should use that type of information both in the history and in the physical exam?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that was the yellow and red flags are one of those things where you know we wanted the model to be as simple as possible and so We took everything out, but then people like, well, but you have to have yellow and red flags, and so we put them back in. So yellow flags refer to psychosocial factors that may influence a person's condition. So it may be things like anxiety, depression, um, psychiatric issues, financial issues, stress, whether they have support at home. And we know from research that these yellow flags can indicate a poorer response to treatment if they're not addressed. Unfortunately, with this population, because they often have these psychosocial issues, sometimes their physical complaints are brushed off as, oh, well, you're just too stressed. You know, The reason why you're fatigued or the reason why you feel dizzy and lightheaded And we felt it was really important to say, yes, these people do sometimes have psychosocial factors that can aggravate their condition. And these psychosocial factors need to be addressed, but they are separate from what's physically going on and they compound, they add to. And so we felt it was important to identify them, address them. Some patients, if they have a really sensitive nervous system because they're highly stressed, Treatment's not going to work very well until you calm that nervous system down. And so they may need to have these psychosocial factors addressed before they're able to respond to or tolerate physical therapy. The red flags refer to things that are cautions, things that we might worry about. And so they might be other diagnoses, things like a stroke that obviously if somebody comes in and they've got facial paralysis and they have a stroke, then that person needs to get to a hospital right away. And so there are certain things, certain conditions that are are very urgent. Also, if it's cervical instability, but it's really severe, then that's a red flag. So if the person is having pseudo seizures, so things that look like epileptic seizures, but they're not true epileptic seizures, they don't have the same brain pattern, then that indicates that the nervous system is being stressed really severely. And again, it's urgent. It may well be the upper cervical instability. It's not a different condition, but it indicates that this is severe and we need to address it. And so the red flags are signs that might, not always, but might indicate that this patient needs special care. For therapists who are not familiar with hypermobility or upper cervical instability, they may say, you know, this is more than I'm ready to deal with. Somebody who's having seizures, you know, when they turn their head is more involved than than my knowledge base. I need to send them to a physical therapist who specializes in this. Or... If you are knowledgeable, you may say, you know, this person needs to see a neurologist or a neurosurgeon. I can still do some treatment to teach them how to take care of themselves, to protect themselves, but they've got something going on that needs to see another provider. And so those red flags are alerts that you may need to, to get additional expertise with this patient. One important thing about the red flags is that it's always a, well, it depends. And so we debated these red flags over and over again, like, you know, somebody passing out. Well, that's not a good thing. But then one of the participants in our group said, well, but I deal with aerial gymnasts. And if they go upside down and they're hanging upside down and they pass out, that's not such an unusual thing. And so everything always depends. And so, you know, if a person's just passing out then it's probably a bad thing, but there might be an explanation for it, right? And so we don't want either the clinicians or the patients to panic and go, "Oh my god, there's something, you know, I've got a brain tumor." But we want them to to step back and say, "Okay, do I need to to take some special steps with this person?" Mm-hmm. And we identify some red flags based on the symptoms and the history. And that would indicate that I need to be careful with my physical exam. So if this is somebody who's having seizures, I'm not having to move their head around. I'm not pushing on their neck. And then we also identified red flags in the physical exam. So if I do a test and I get a certain result, then that might indicate, okay, there are some structures that are being stressed that make this a more urgent situation than another patient who may be having, let's say, pain and headaches, but not neurological involvement.
0: And I feel like because of all of those nuances, it makes it even harder for the person who might be struggling with this to find a neurologist or a physical therapist who really will take the time to, to listen, I, I, more so the neurologist than the physical therapist. The physical therapist probably will take a pretty detailed history, and the neurologist I feel like oftentimes, especially in these, what often are young females, I feel like it's so common for people to have their symptoms disregarded and dismissed. And do you have any suggestions for someone who's having difficulty finding the care that they need?
1: Yeah, that is a really challenging problem. And it's even worse because... If the neurologist does anything, they're going to do an MRI and a CT scan, but those are going to be done lying down Mm -hmm. with the head perfectly in neutral and everything's Mm -hmm. going to look fine. Instability is what happens when you're upright and you can't control the motion. And that's an important distinction. So being hypermobile is different than being unstable. So hypermobility means you have too much motion. So if I can turn my head 110 degrees each way, that's too much motion. But it's only unstable if the muscles are unable to control the motion, if the muscles are allowing things to wobble around. And you can't see instability Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on an MRI, Mm
0: -hmm. especially
1: if the patient is lying down with the head supported. And so sometimes the neurologist will do some of these imaging tests which are not appropriate and they'll interpret the negative results and say, oh, you, there's nothing wrong with your neck. And then go on to say, oh, you're just overreacting. And you're a young female that, you know, you're just hysterical. And, and the problems that you just mentioned of not being believed. Finding a good clinician is really, really challenging. So the ehlers Low Society does have a list of EDS knowledgeable clinicians, so physicians and physical therapists and occupational therapists, but there aren't nearly enough people on that list. And so there are big deserts where there's no appropriate care. So I don't think I have a neurologist or neurosurgeon knowledgeable about EDS within 500 miles. Mm. And so you know, what do I do with a patient that I think is unstable? And the local neurologists are doing the supine MRIs saying, looks fine to me. And some people will travel for care, if especially if they have more severe involvement. And I think our model helps those people identify whether they fit into the highly irritable category, because you can have a lot of pain, but it's not highly irritable. It's fairly constant. It's more controlled. You are more likely to be able to manage it through exercise and body mechanics. But I think the article helps people figure out, well, which category am I in? Should I travel to see a specialist or should I first spend six months working on exercise and body mechanics? But I don't have a good answer to the the lack of clinicians other than to access the Ehlers-Danlos Society list and to ask people who are knowledgeable. If you have a physical therapist who's knowledgeable about hypermobility, they probably know the local doctors that are knowledgeable and you can build a network that way. Uh,
0: Absolutely. And I think that it's just so... Fascinating that nowadays I, I want to thank you for making this article also open access, because that means that, you know, anybody can access it, not just people who are, you know, working at a teaching institution or something. And I think a lot of people don't realize that that's that's a newer evolution in scientific literature. And it is really important because it does allow then patients to be able and their families, you know, to be able to read yep. these things and try their best to interpret, like you said, the irritability type information and make some better, more informed choices about wh- what they might do or where they might go. So
1: Right. And to share it with their clinicians, we've been right. hearing that patients are printing it out and bringing it to their doctor's appointments. And it's thanks to the ehlers Donlow Society and Dr. Hakim's facilitation that it is open access. They sponsored it um, to make it available open access. So with appreciation to them for, for doing that. But we've been getting lots of positive feedback from patients. It has almost 23,000 views already, which is just mind boggling, but it shows how hungry people are for knowledge. Yes, I, just I don't have
0: yet. Right, right. And And I've accessed this article multiple times online and I have seen that count go up And within 24 hours, there was a a huge number of of views and shares and that kind of thing. And and it's just climbed so incredibly quickly, which definitely tells you that there's a lot of people who are interested in this information. And I do think most of it is patients that have been struggling to get the right imaging and, and things like that. Is there anything that you think people can do? Let's say they're working with with another type of physician that maybe is open-minded, but not super knowledgeable in terms of like more advanced imaging, because it seems a little bit like different neurosurgeons like different kinds of imaging. Some are going to want, you know, upright MRI, others are going to want rotational imaging. Um, Any thoughts about that?
1: So we deliberately chose not to address the imaging issue. Mm -hmm. There are actually a couple of recent systematic reviews looking at imaging for upper cervical instability. So there are some publications on that that make recommendations of the, the neurosurgeons who specialize in cervical instability in hypermobile patients. There are differences. So some do want to see the upright MRI because they want to see how gravity loads both the musculoskeletal system, but also the neural system inside. Other clinicians prefer the supine because it can be more precise, but that's usually after they've already made a a diagnosis Mm -hmm. and they're making decisions about surgery. So there are some good articles out there that talk about the imaging and we chose not to address that because we already had a lot on our plate with
0: the conservative care. That, that makes sense. And we can share that, those other articles also in the show notes, which I think people would probably really uh, appreciate. So, and, and yes, printing out articles and highlighting certain relevant sections because everyone's busy and um, approaching that in a way with your clinician of saying, you know, I'm curious about this. This is something I think might apply to me is um, really, really important because, you know, none of us like to be felt like we don't know what we're doing or anything like that. So I think it's really important to to approach someone in a really respectful way with this information, with these articles or whatever that you bring in to approach them and say, you know, I'm I'm curious about this. Would you be willing to take a look at it?
1: Yeah. And I find the best clinicians are often the ones who are open-minded, who are willing to say, I know a lot about many things, but I don't know everything. And Mm -hmm. if there's something I don't already know about, I'm interested in learning. So I find it's usually a good sign when a clinician says, "Hmm, I don't know a lot about that, but I do want to learn more. It's usually a sign that they really do know a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So that's a good sign. And I do have a patient summary based on the article um, that's available on my website that focuses on what the patient... Um, what the patient feels and things that they can do to take care of themselves. So for people who are overwhelmed by the full academic article, there's a patient summary. That's a little bit more layperson terminology.
0: Thank you so much for doing that. That's really amazing. And we, and we can link that in the show notes as well. So people can easily access all of these things that were, that we're referencing. So great. So so getting back to the article, um, what interventions do you recommend in the article? And I know you broke those up into different categories based on irritability. Could you discuss that a little bit?
1: Sure. So just like we use their basic irritability based on their symptoms to decide what physical tests we felt were safe to do. After doing the physical test, we reassess irritability and decide what interventions are safe to do, and we graded the interventions on three levels. One level, which is um, we felt was safe for everybody, so could be implemented even with patients who have extremely irritable condition. Another level, which was for people who had moderate instability, and then another set of interventions for people with milder instability. And the the clinicians or the the clinicians and researchers who compiled the the recommendations treat a wide range of patients. So we had some clinicians who treat patients who are bedbound, who may be going in for fusion surgery. but then on the other extreme we had some clinicians who treat professional acrobats um, who are high level athletic performers. and so treatment, range is a huge spectrum and what's appropriate for that acrobat might not be appropriate for the person who's in bed. So we have those tiers of interventions. The interventions for the most irritable person tend to avoid directly affecting the neck because Mm. the neck is irritable. And so we Focus on things like lining up the whole body, having a stable foundation, the feet, the hips, the low back, stable foundation for the head and neck. Working on body awareness in the lumbar spine so that people have more stability in their lumbar spine, body mechanics so that when they're doing simple things like brushing their teeth, they're not leaning their head forward, but hip hinging, and keeping the head stable. So there are certain interventions, a lot of education for patients that all patients would benefit from. And then the next level up is when we might start doing some direct intervention to the neck. So we might start doing some body awareness exercise or proprioception exercise. So we know that people with hypermobility have poor proprioception or body awareness. And we think this is important in the neck because if you don't know where your head is, it's more likely to wobble around. You're not going to have good control over the movement. And so you can start these proprioception exercises at this second level. And start doing some thoracic upper back strengthening and a little bit of neck exercise. And then, for people who have the mildest form of instability, they can do more aggressive exercise. And our experience shows that if you have a person with high irritability and they're responding to therapy, the irritability will decrease and then they'll be able to do more. And if they continue to improve, the irritability will decrease some more. And so, People aren't stuck at a level of irritability because remember, instability is the inability of the, the muscles and the nerves that control those muscles to maintain stability. So being hypermobile doesn't mean you're unstable. You can become stable through training the muscles and the nerves. And people will change from being highly irritable to moderate irritability to low irritability to being relatively symptom-free most of the time, if they're responding well to therapy.
0: Definitely. And one thing I feel like in our current healthcare, which often is so production focused and you know uh, getting more throughput, I feel like the differential diagnosis is something that often gets less thought about, you know, we, we evaluate somebody and we come up with the di- what we think the, di- the working diagnosis, right? And we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about the differential diagnosis, but you talked about that as well, conditions that should be considered in the differential diagnosis. Um, can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. That just because somebody looks like they have instability doesn't mean they do. And it doesn't mean that's the only thing that they have. They could have other conditions as well. And that can make it complicated. So POTS, for example, many people with hypermobility have POTS. POTS can make you lightheaded. It can make you have drop attacks where you just collapse on the ground. And so you may have POTS in addition to cervical instability, but also you may have functional neurological disorder. So that's when the nervous system is not functioning properly. So there's the sensory version, which is, we call it nociplastic pain, where the nociceptive or pain processing nerves are not communicating well. And you have pain that's a processing error, which is different from pain due to tissue damage. And people who are hypermobile often have both. And the functional neurological disorder is the same, but on the motor side, where the motor nerves are not functioning properly, and people may have abnormal movements from that. And if we don't recognize these either alternate or coexisting conditions, then we're not going to be providing the best intervention. And so we always want to keep in the back of our mind of, okay, it looks like somebody with cervical instability, but might it be something different or might they also have something else going on? And especially if the patient's not responding well to therapy, we want to pull those hypotheses back up and say, okay, okay what's going on. And and POTS is a good example that sometimes patients who have POTS who don't respond to our usual POTS management, it's because they have cervical instability. And so if you're managing their POTS and it's just like, they're not getting better the way they should be getting better. It's like, okay, is something else going on? And then considering, hmm, maybe they've got cervical instability and that's aggravating their POTS. And maybe I need to treat the cervical instability for their pots to get better. It's all very complicated. And there's a bit of trial and error to see, well, let me try this and see if they get better. And if they do, that's great. If they don't, okay, I need to step back and reassess my hypotheses.
0: It, it is so complicated. And I feel like for so many people, including myself, you know, you could be on a certain trajectory and you have a certain uh, response, maybe to, I'm in physical therapy right now myself. And then I'll, you know, I'll start getting better and then I'll do something, I'll fall or I'll I'll move my shoulder in the wrong way or something and now all of a sudden things are are worse but it has nothing to do with the actual therapy that has been prescribed by the physical therapist. That aspect of things is going really well, but with people with symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility, injury is something that can happen so commonly with just everyday tasks. I feel like it can be really difficult to to sort out, you know, how, improvement and that kind of thing. Do you have any kind of an app or anything like that, that you use with your patients to help them track these kinds of things? Cause I find even myself, I, I go back to, for another appointment. And I'm trying to remember what happened and, you know um, how things were going. Cause if, if it's a couple of weeks in between appointments, it's hard to remember all that.
1: Right. Yeah. There are some wellness apps. There are some wellness journals that have, let's say a page per day, and they ask you to rate your symptoms, each day. There are some pain management apps that are similar that they ask you to rate your your primary symptoms and and to track what might be causing that change. Um, There's not one particular tracking app though that I recommend to patients. Keeping a journal though can be helpful Um, and like I said, you can get journals off of Amazon that have, you know, a page per day and they have certain symptoms that you can keep track of. And you bring up a really important point, which is when you're hypermobile, you're vulnerable to flares. And as a physical therapist, I'm not going to make a hypermobile person never have pain again. But what I hope to do is give them a toolbox so that When they tweak their shoulder, they go, oh, yep, yep, that's the shoulder thing. And I know what to do. I can do this, this, and this, that, okay, I need to rest it for a while. I need to go back to my really basic exercises before I start moving it. And, um, you know, maybe put a topical on or a TENS machine. So having a, a toolbox. And I actually have a handout that I give my patients, especially when I get to the point where I'm discharging them, which is a flare management Plan where they write things out, because people will forget that they've got a TENS machine and they'll say, oh, I flared up and, you know, my back hurts. It's like, well, did you use your TENS machine? They're like, oh, I completely forgot. And so writing it down, put it on your refrigerator, because when you have a flare, you're not going to think clearly. You're not going to remember. It's like, oh, yeah, I've got my TENS machine or, oh, yeah, you know, that particular topical works for that particular pain Um, or even, oh, I've got those finger splints. Where did I put my finger splints? And so having a toolbox, and it really does help to write down your what's in your toolbox. Some people will have a notebook. You know, it's like, these are the things I do for my shoulder. These are my shoulder exercises. When my shoulder flares up, this is what I do for my neck when my neck flares up. Um, and so keeping a notebook
0: can be helpful as well. Yeah, keeping a notebook or even um, I had a very major surgery in 2011, and I was very glad that I made... I mean, I literally just took a single piece of paper and I was writing down, I did five minutes on the treadmill at half a mile an hour. And then, you know, the next day, five minutes at 0.7 miles an hour or whatever, you know, and, and it really was so helpful because there were points where I thought I'm not progressing. And I would look back at that single piece of paper and I would look at the notes at the top and I would go, oh my gosh, I totally forgot that things had been that bad. So I think another point of keeping a journal like this is that it's really easy for us to forget how significant our symptoms were and how much progress we've made. And that can be discouraging. So if we can look back and see, oh no, I, we actually have made progress. That can really help us to keep going and to keep us you know, compliant with our home exercise program, for example.
1: Right, and to remind you that you've had flares before and you've worked Mm -hmm. through flares before and you'll work through this flare too. It might take a few weeks or a few months, but yes, things can get better. And if you do the right things, things will get better. Sometimes it takes time and sometimes knowing how long it takes. So if you're having a, let's say a POTS flare, it may take weeks to feel better. If you're having a mass cell flare, it's probably going to take months to feel better. It's like, Mm -hmm. even when you're doing the right things for yourself, it may take months and reminding yourself, it's like, okay, it's only been one month. And my PT told me it's going to be at least three to six months. We're okay. We're on schedule Mm -hmm. and a journal can help you with that as
0: well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So coming up with these recommendations had to be I would think, really challenging. It's a really amazing thing that you all did. As soon as I I heard about this a little bit, but then as soon as I saw it, I was like, wow, this is really, really incredible. Um, What was the most challenging aspect of developing these recommendations?
1: Well, from a logistic point of view, just scheduling people from Sydney, Australia to California, finding a time zone that works. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways that we dealt with that is that we had teams. So i was the team leader in the United States. There was a team leader in London, a team leader in Australia, and we would have meetings with our group more often. And then the team leaders would come together with those people who could make the meetings to share um, with the the broader group. So just the logistics, people were so generous with their time. Some people came at six in the morning. Some people came at 10 at night and Mm -hmm. it just shows the commitment of the people involved. But coming up with a model was really challenging. We went through a lot of iterations of different models. So some people, um, so in London, they have their spider model, which is coming out now where people have symptoms in different systems and they wanted to, to use that for this and it's like, well, it's a great model, but it makes things even more complicated in ways that are not related to the cervical instability. And then people said, it's like, oh, the model's too complicated. And so I simplified it. And then they said, well, but you have to put this in and this, right, thing, and this right. thing. So then we put things back in. And so it's a little like herding cats that, you know, they would say, well, we want it to be bigger and smaller at the same time. Right, right. Um, and so trying to to reiterate, it's like, okay, this is what I'm hearing from the group. You know, is this what you want to do? Um, But everybody was so committed to the outcome of coming up with these recommendations that people were patient and we just went through things over and over and over again until we streamlined it to the final two page flow chart that we ended up with, with the boxes, we wanted to make it user friendly so you could look at a box and say, oh, these are the, you know, the symptoms or the tests or the treatments And um, it was just an amazing team to work with. And so I was really fortunate to have such a a group of people who
0: were so committed. And to me, that's the a really amazing thing. And for people to to understand that a lot of these clinicians are in private practice. So they are spending all this time and they're getting no compensation for it whatsoever. They they are doing this on their own free time. Writing an article is time consuming anyway, but then coming up with all these recommendations in order to then do the incredible work of writing the article is just, um, it really is incredible. And I think that for people, I think that I hope, helps people have more hope for the future, that we have clinicians that are that passionate about helping people with symptomatic generalized joint hypermobility.
1: Well, it's like the time that you're putting into having the podcast, right? That um, we really are fortunate to have such a committed group of healthcare providers who are so devoted to their patient populations.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely true. And for clinicians that are listening to this conversation, how do you think that they would best use these recommendations? And are there any caveats that you want to add?
1: So the recommendations are pretty self-explanatory. There's even little check boxes next to it where you can say, it's like, okay, this person's hypermobile and this person, they've got the symptoms, they've got, it's irritable, their neck. And so we tried to make it user-friendly, but remembering that these patients are complicated and there are so many, it depends issues that, you know, is that a red flag? Well, it depends. Um, you know, is that a sign of POTS or of instability? Well, it depends. And so clinicians need to recognize that there's no recipe that works for everybody. And that's true with the interventions as well. Can you do this intervention? Well, it depends. You can probably do it with a patient with let's say moderate instability, but some patients won't tolerate it. and So you really need to be listening to the patient and realizing that each patient is individual. And so not trying to use it like a cookbook that works with everyone, but using it as a resource of ideas and um, to help you figure out, it's like, okay, well, if this isn't working, maybe I need to back off and look at the, the interventions that are appropriate for everybody. Maybe this person's got something going on that um, bumps them up in their irritability status. So being flexible in how they use it and realizing that it's not a cookbook.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And for people who, for patients that are listening to this and are maybe accessing the the whole article, um, that they, if they want to try some things at home because they have difficulty accessing a knowledgeable physical therapist, um, they would start maybe perhaps with some of those low things for people, um, the first set of recommendations that were for somebody with any level of irritability, that would be the best place to start, right? Right.
1: So basic posture, body mechanics is good for everybody. And we think all patients would benefit from this and patients who let's say have a milder irritability may progress more quickly through, but everybody would benefit from pay attention to where your head is, pay attention to where your low back is, how you're sitting, how you're doing your basic activities, like brushing your hair, if you're turning your head to brush your hair, putting your hearing aids in, that these are basic principles that apply to everyone. Um, But for patients who have, or think they may have instability, if anything makes you worse, back off. Remember you're an individual and what works for other people
0: might not work for you. So listen to your body definitely. And was there anything that you wanted to cover that we didn't talk about today? We got so many uh, great, great summaries about this article, so many great tips and um, this is just such an incredible resource for people to have. Was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover?
1: No, I think your questions really covered covered a lot of content. So um, we really addressed the the article. I do have a a weekly lecture series that I do for patients. I call it my Hypermobility 101 Lectures, and they're available on Zoom. They're available on my website as well if people are interested. For patients who feel like they don't have experts around them who can educate them, they can get a lot of knowledge from the, the Hypermobility 101 Lectures, and they're welcome to access those on my website.
0: OK, great. Uh, and is there a fee for those?
1: Nope, they're all free. So the wow. recordings are on my website and I do a lecture, um, one lecture live a week that people are welcome to attend. And so it's an option for people to get education get questions answered. I can't answer individual medical questions, but in terms of basic principles of, of what hypermobility is like and, and ways that people can take care of themselves, because ultimately that's what we have to do as patients is take Mm -hmm. care of ourselves, develop a toolbox that helps us to manage whatever goes out on our particular bodies. And so my goal is to give more people more tools.
0: And that's just a wonderful thing that you're doing. That's really, really, really amazing. And And where can people find you?
1: Um, well, you can access my website. So I can give you the link to my website. And that's probably the best way to access me. My email address is there as well. Okay. I'm semi-retired from Clarkson <laughs> University, so... They won't find me at my Clarkson phone number anymore.
0: Okay, excellent. Well, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And our guest today was Dr. Leslie Russick, DPT, PhD, And Leslie, it has been so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so very much for coming on the podcast again to chat about this incredibly important topic that applies to so many people. So many clinicians need to know more about it. And so this is just a really great um, thing that you came back to chat with me today.
1: And thank you for everything that you're doing to educate patients and providers as well. That is really important as well.
0: Very good. Thank you. If you found this helpful, follow the Bendy Bodies podcast to avoid missing future episodes. Please leave a review and share the podcast so more people know about Bendy Bodies and joint hypermobility. Screenshot this episode, tagging us in your story so we can connect. Our website is www.bendybodies.org and follow us on Instagram at Bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so please tag us using hashtag BendyBuddy. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information shared is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for any medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfein Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.